0: Hello, and welcome to another Recovery Talks podcast. I'm Andy Daniel, social media coordinator for MPN, and I'm here with Demetrius Fasses. He is the interim director for the Butte Spirit Center, which is a new nonprofit organization that will be opening up a recovery home in Butte. Welcome, Demetrius.
1: Hey, Andy. Yeah, Thanks for having me today.
0: Tell me a little bit about yourself.
1: Well again, my name is Demetrius fasis uh, i I was born and and raised in Kentucky and I got a a, a degree in um, biology and a minor in chemistry in in Indiana. My work over the past six, seven years has been mostly in the nonprofit sector i I spent six years working with uh, working to build locally resilient food systems and and promoting healthy eating habits and K through 12 schools and in preschools and healthcare institutions. I worked for NCAT in Butte for a while. So funding and building and implementing programs is, is a big part of what I enjoy and, and what I've been working at in the past. So I, I currently work with the Butte Spirit Center in, in part to stay connected to that nonprofit work and and that program development that I enjoy. You know, also it's a it's a huge part of my my recovery. And I see a huge need in Butte for for what we're offering.
0: Tell me a little bit about what the Spirit Center is.
1: So the Butte Spirit Center is a recovery home for men recovering from substance use disorder. We will be licensed in the state of Montana as an ASAM level 3.1 treatment center, basically. And uh, ASAM is the American Society of Addiction Medicine Level 3.1 simply means that in addition to the residential component, the folks that are, are living there and, and under our care will also be getting five or more hours of recovery related programming, you know, in accordance with what's appropriate for their individual treatment plans uh, each week. And we, we chose to, to locate in, in a residential area in Butte after looking at a whole lot of different options mainly because it's, the point is transitional living. <laughs> and if you move people from maybe uh, an inpatient treatment center uh, where they spent 28 days or three months or six months or from a Department of Corrections program and, and put them into another institutional setting, it's, it's not really getting them much closer to transitioning back into independent living and, and living in a community. And so a lot of the successful programs that we looked at as models, tried to locate in in really in nice neighborhoods and nice homes and giving people a chance to experience something of stability and community that they may not have had before and and kind of helping to to raise the bar and and the expectations of what what each individual that comes into the home can can have and can accomplish for themselves.
0: So tell me how you got involved with the Beat Spirit Center.
1: I got I got involved with Butte Spirit as at the at the at the ground level as uh, as a founder, and I guess it behooves me to go go back kind of to the beginning and, and talk a little bit about my recovery story and where, how how I came to 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 feel empowered to do something like this to step into this role and, and to create something at a, at a bigger level. You know, every, every day I use, I use some affirmations and, and, and one of the ones that I, I love is, I'm no better and no worse than anyone else and I have nothing to prove. And I use that affirmation daily because I have a superpower and I need those daily reminders that I, I must only use it for good. And that superpower is addiction, or it presents us addiction. I'm 30 years old, I'm five years into recovery, and I'm still addicted to three things, definitely. Uh, and that is more, better, and different. By the time I made it to college, I was a, a well-rounded drug dealer. I had learned how to properly drink whiskey uh, in my youth in, in Kentucky from a bunch of older guys that I'd been hanging out with through high school. Two years into my higher education, I was forced to attend AA meetings or be expelled from school. So I got stoned and I went. And fast forward through four years of depression and self-medicating with high powered sedatives and moving across the country to Montana to try to escape. And I was rifling through my freshly deceased mother's medication, just like it was any one of the 20 people that I'd stolen from before. And that was the moment that my family discovered I had a serious problem. And so I went back to meetings to placate their concerns, but I didn't really want it. I sure as hell tried to stop, though, and I struggled for nine months. I steeled myself against triggers, and I fell flat on my face time and time again. And there was this one morning that I woke up after a bender, and I had tried so hard to protect myself against it. And I remembered a story in the AA Big Book that had been recommended to me uh, called Acceptance Was the Answer. And I read that for the full time. I read that in full for the first time that morning and it, and it broke me. I had this tremendous acceptance that I can't do this by myself. So I checked into a 28-day treatment program on Cinco de Mayo in 2015. And I thought I was there to get help exercising this demon, which had caused me all of this pain and loneliness and loss of self-respect. And about two weeks in, I had this epiphany that was like, holy shit, I am the demon. Like, that's me and the responsibility to change is mine. And I'm powerless to do that by myself. So after treatment, I went into sober living at the castle in Anaconda, uh, well, in Opportunity, and I, I stayed there for three months. I, I, I never planned to go, you know, I thought it was 28 days and I was going to be cured, right? I never planned to do aftercare, but that willingness that I got in treatment led me into taking more and more steps to change all of these things in my life. You know, I remember my my counselor in there, she used to say, well, you only have to change one thing, Demetrius, and that's everything. And, you know, slowly but surely, I did change everything. So in sober living for three months, I started working again in Butte, I formed friendships and recovery. I found my first sponsor. I began began regularly attending 12-step meetings. And then I moved in. I found some guys in the program that were looking for a roommate. And so I moved in with a few friends that I met at meetings. And slowly I started to realize like I changed all the external things that I could change. But still I clung on to powerlessness and, and the idea that surrendering my problems to a power greater than myself was the final answer. So I worked steps, I made exceptions, I minced words, I got into romantic relationships too early, I relapsed. I learned to have fun in sobriety, to play music, to go to concerts, go skiing and hiking and hunting, all with people in recovery. I had hard laughs like I'd never known before. I learned not to take life so seriously, but I was still clinging to powerlessness and after a few relapses, I started writing and talking with other people in recovery more about my relationships, and I noticed this pattern that I had these miserable relationships with women, with, with, other, with other people, then they all reflected back on me, and, and in fact, all of my misery was self-made. So this past year, I moved back to Kentucky for a while, and I got my fourth sponsor there, Who also happened to be trained in peer support. And I started meeting with a therapist again. And then, after a couple of weeks, my, after a couple of weeks working with him and and my therapist, my whole understanding of recovery began to shift. Uh, I started to distinctly identify these different voices in my head and in my gut. and, And I realized that I am no longer the demon. But I realized the, the voice of my inner critic and, and my superego, you know, this, this kind of parent figure in the back of my head that's telling me what's right and what's wrong was just the result of a myriad of small traumas over time that I've experienced over the course of my life. And in the 12 steps, steps six and seven, they're not just a process of surrendering to a higher power, but that's a call to make changes in my own life. So for me, powerless was this transitional state where I learned how to live without creating harm for myself and others. And then I stepped through powerlessness through this threshold where I became empowered with tools of recovery, with my peers, my mentors, and a God of my own understanding. And I stepped into a place where the voices in my head were no longer something that I just idly accept as myself, but they were simply unconscious programs that could in fact be reprogrammed. And don't misunderstand me, when you're hardwired for self-destruction like I was, it takes a whole lot of mindfulness and manual programming as I like to call it in order to see improvements. But the point is the power of choice has been returned to me, not just in drinking or using drugs, but in all things. And so that's my superpower today. Today I get to choose moment by moment how I'm going to live and that comes with a lot of responsibility. The intense focus that I once placed on drugs and alcohol, the tactful manipulation of the world and the people in it, like all of these things are still powers that I have today. And I am learning to only use them for good. And what I, I, I attended a meeting um, a couple of years ago, I was working on a sailboat in Thailand, of all, <laughs> I attended a meeting in Thailand where this lady said, you know, I'm sitting in a room full of people who are above average wage earners. And I thought it was a really interesting way to put it. But when you look at the passion that addicts bring into life, albeit many times misguided passion, (laughs) there is so much capacity for good in, in a recovering addict and so much energy that needs direction. And to learn that all I have to do to get that direction is work with other people that have done it. You know, like I, I used to be fueled by fear that I would go back to the way things were. And today, what I'm fueled by is seeing positive characteristics and attributes and, and achievements in other people and in the world around me and realizing that I can attain that, but I have to I have to ask how. I have to work with somebody else to get there. That freedom of being able to choose a path and then dive into the, the relationships that are going to help me get there, I mean, that's what keeps me sober today. And that's, you know, two years ago, my friend, Sean Wisner, called me on the phone. I was just leaving the country, to, to go on, on this trip in Southeast Asia. And he was like, have you ever thought about how much Butte needs sober, like a good sober living? And I was like, yeah, yeah, that would be awesome. And he was like, well, do you think the YMCA would be a good building for it? And I was like, Sean, I have had this conversation with at least three other people. Let's, let's talk more, like how serious are you? And he was like, well, I've got, I've got some resources that I could put into it like I'm keen if you've got if you know people that would be interested and so in the span of about 3 months we had put together a seven member board of directors and filed for nonprofit status and we started holding board meetings and I was getting up at 3:30 in the morning on the other side of the world to be the secretary at these board meetings and loving it absolutely loving it and it has, the right people have showed up at the right times. And even the, the challenges that we've had with citing the home and, and kind of the neighborhood backlash that we got initially when we first tried to buy a home, like something good has come of all of it and the right people have showed up at the right times. And, you know, I think that it's, I, I, I have to give credit to a higher power I have to give credit to forces that are beyond me, beyond just what our our board can do. You know, like, this is a case where the whole is greater than the sum of its parts, and that's because it's fueled by a spiritual program. Like, that is, all of the members of our board practice a spiritual program that, you know, when we come together to make decisions, it's it's not just, you know, us banging around in our rational minds trying to figure out what the right thing is. Like, I've gotten myself into a whole lot of trouble thinking that I could think my way through a problem. And and what I've learned to do in recovery is to get back to trusting instinct, trusting intuition, trusting gut, and and being... Doing that with a group of people is a uh, is a really powerful experience, and the name Butte Spirit came out of this belief that the the solution to addiction is a spiritual solution. It's Spirit is actually a long-winded acronym: Butte, Silver Bow, Persons Invested in Recovery and Inner Transformation. You no, know, I think Spirit really encompasses what we are trying to bring into the house and what we hope that that folks that live there and transition through there get to take with them when they when they leave.
0: How do people get hooked up with it, right? Like what are the requirements that they have to meet in order to live in the spirit house?
1: Yeah, so we are, we primarily want to serve men from Butte Silver Bow and and the surrounding counties you know not, not excluding Anaconda or, or Whitehall one of one of our co-founders is is from Whitehall so you know first preference is given to folks from the community Butte has you know is kind of notorious area <laughs> for substance abuse and so that would be a not a requirement but certainly a preference that we have that we hold and uh, obviously men and at this point are accepting referrals from programs like WATCH, which is, was created for felony DUI offenders. It's a Department of Corrections program from Connections Corrections, um, CCP, people coming out of the pre-release. You know, so folks that are justice involved that, that are coming out of the Department of Corrections, as well as individuals that are coming from residential treatment settings so like MCDC or Rimrock or you know any of the, the the other treatment providers in the state and it's not a not a prerequisite that you've done treatment to come into the home because community health in Butte frequently I, I've talked with their director of behavioral health a couple of times now and, and she said that they, they frequently have people that come in that have a job that have a family that try therapy or try meetings and they they don't they haven't had the ability to to develop the discipline or the practice or the tools to stay sober on their own but they're not willing to give up their work to go to treatment and try to take care of the problem well willingness is a huge part of <laughs> recovery but if if someone like that would be willing to step into the, the spirit home as an environment, I think that that would also be an appropriate fit. And what we're looking at is a three to six month, nine month kind of maximum stay. You know, we want to transition people into independent living, help them find their their own housing and get them established in the recovery community. Like Butte has there's a lot of alcoholism in Butte and with that comes a whole lot of people that are in recovery and, and in long-term recovery. And, you know, it was a huge part of my recovery was, was plugging into that community. And a lot of times, you know, in, in early recovery, you don't know what you don't know. You don't know who you can lean on. You don't know that you can lean on other people, Period. You know the weight of the world is on your shoulders, and and the stigma is that a lot of people that struggle with substance use disorder are weak-willed and you know less less than because they are making choices that are destroying their lives, their families' lives, you know the the world around them, and and I think when you can slide into a community that recognizes it as an illness and that has a solution, and that shares a common story, The, the you have to have some foundation to build a life in recovery on. And, and so we hope that in that kind of three to six month period, we can help people develop that foundation because inpatient treatment is very insular, it's very safe, and it's a huge shock to step out of an inpatient program back into the community that you were drinking or using it in and be hit with all the same, you know, people might expect you to be all better. <laughs> that's the that's the crazy part is nobody see a lot of people don't see addiction as an illness and as something that that you're gonna to have to deal with for the rest of your life. I, I, I like to relate it back to like smoking cigarettes. If you ask anybody that has quit smoking or quit using tobacco products, you know, what would happen if they picked up a cigarette or threw in another chew, like they know automatically that they would go right back to, you to, to doing it every day. Like this is no different. Like you're still, you still have that tendency for the rest of your life. And so unless you've got some kind of program that can continuously help you to address that, uh, it, it life gets more challenging.
0: Yeah, there's. we talk a lot about the difference between physical illnesses or diseases, right? And like substance use or, or mental health and that kind of thing, and how, how society sort of views those as different, when they really have the same sort of mechanisms, right? I mean, there's not really that much difference between I have diabetes and I have a substance use issue or I have a mental health issue, right? But they're treated differently. So when you're talking about they expect to be fixed, in my mind that looks like it it feels like a broken bone, right? As opposed to a long standing disease process. So like people are treating it like, well, you went to treatment, you got all better, right? Now you're better and you don't ever have to worry about any of that anymore, which isn't an accurate way to look at it.
1: Yeah, 100%. It's, you know, I I love the example of diabetes because I worked in this kind of school nutrition field and and looked at childhood obesity and, and childhood diabetes a lot. And like, yeah, The environment definitely creates those conditions. Personal choice definitely create those conditions. But once you develop the condition, you're there. Like, and nobody is gonna. It would be hugely short-sighted to simply blame the individual for having diabetes and not do anything to help them. Right, right. (laughs) Or not make any accommodation. Or until until we start meeting people where they're at and you know acknowledging like the people dealing with addiction are are in more or less a hopeless state of mind and body and they need help and and blame doesn't doesn't solve anything or shaming doesn't solve anything uh you know to me it is addiction is spiritual bankruptcy it is this loss of connection to other people. Spirituality was explained to me in like a beautiful way one time. Somebody told me that the spirit was the breath of life. That is what my spirit is. It's the thing that makes me alive. And spirituality is simply recognizing that that we all share that. Like you, me, the the gutter drunk in the alley, like we all have that same, that same spirit. And when you can meet people on that level, then then you can work you can work with them you can you can uh, you know you can really be of assistance. But if it's you know if I am looking down on you in a therapeutic relationship or in a professional relationship, that's not where that doesn't build connection. You know that kind of superior and inferior relationship just it, it drives wedges and I think that that's like a, kind of a, a huge issue in, in the, the our medical system I mean that's why I was working in healthy food for a while because I, I actually when I was in college I started out for a pharmacy degree and a couple of years in I realized that the pharmaceutical industry doesn't care anything about health like what am I doing granted they also almost expelled me because apparently they don't like drug addicts in pharmacy school. Who knew? <laughs> you know, I was really grateful <laughs> for that <laughs> because it it changed my it changed my view of what health is.
0: So you talked about that, like that level of if I'm treating you, and you know, there's like a hierarchy. It sort of leads into peer support, right? Mm-hmm. So, um, tell me a little bit about how peer support plays a role in like the vision of the spirit home, you know, how you integrate that into the services.
1: Yeah, definitely. I got, I got really excited when I, when I learned about peer support because my, my recovery experience has been largely fueled by peer to peer interactions. And my sponsor in 12 step programs is uh, certified as a peer supporter in, in Kentucky. And, you know, I saw kind of the tools that he brought into our relationship from peer support, and I really, I, I love the, I don't know, the spirit of 12-step is, the, you know, there, there's nothing nothing really parallels the value of one addict helping another. You know, that is, that is the essence of where you, where, where I feel called to go to in recovery is into service. It's, it's the, the idea that you can only keep what you've got by giving it away. You know, I, I think that that's, that's very true because it, it keeps it fresh for me where, where I came from. And when, when I'm when I'm working with people that are in early recovery. And so, you know, in the house, we want everyone that works directly in the house, like the residence manager and the assistant residence manager, and then myself as director, to all be peer support certified, or at least have gone through the training and and have some basis for a peer mentoring relationship. And so in addition to programming in the house, where the guys will be going to outpatient programming so they'll get some of that traditional therapeutic model they they will have their their own therapist but then they will also have a if it's deemed in their individual treatment plan they will have a peer supporter and i hope that that relationship goes on beyond just what we what the time that they get with the, with peer support in the house cuz i don't know when you hear when you when you connect with somebody that's been there that that you can identify with the the walls come down like so fast you know the time that it takes to develop rapport with a traditional within the tr- traditional therapeutic model is just crushed by peer support <laughs> you know like when when you hear someone else's story and you can identify with it there's immediately a willingness to listen to this person and to take suggestions and work with with a peer that just takes a lot more time to get to that point in in traditional therapy and so yeah we want we strive to be a, a peer supported community model you know there'll be a lot of people that are in recovery that come in and out of that house and that that offer you know we've got I've got friends that want to come in and cook dinner one night a week and you know people that want to come in and talk nutrition and and help with with financial uh, literacy and, and and life skills training but we want to have those those peer support groups and 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 peers that will you know walk beside of the residents as they build the foundation of their new life because that trying to do it by yourself really it's not the it's not has what has worked for me <laughs> and and i have heard a lot of stories about recovering from recovering addicts and it seems like working with other people is kind of the way to go so it's uh, it just peer support's a a, a natural fit i think I, I don't know, it gives me a lot of encouragement to see that the professional community has recognized that. You know, mental health, behavioral health, there's been a lot of changes just in the past few years that I've been tracking it. And, uh, you know, all of a sudden, the field of behavioral health is no longer just, well, let me say, substance use disorder is no longer isolated from mental and behavioral health. Like they all fit under that behavioral health arena at this point, which seems like a no brainer to me. And to be able to talk about those experiences brings healing. And it doesn't just bring healing for me and talking about them, it brings healing for anyone else that I'm talking about it with to be able to honestly and vulnerably share about, What's going on in our in our mental health is uh, it's a huge part of healing. I mean, do I, I I think peer support's great for for substance use disorder and and recovery. I think it's great for mental health, and I think it's great for trauma. And it's amazing to me that it it almost feels like we're cheating because. The, the medical community is allowing it to be a, a billable service you know it's, a, it, it's weird that we have to incentivize something that should be normal <laughs> but hell like it it that's consumer culture. <laughs> that's where we're at.
0: yeah somebody has to pay for it somewhere because. <laughs> yeah mm-hmm.
1: it's a weird it's a weird situation <laughs> but I'm also grateful for it because what it signifies to me is this awakening to the fact that uh you know having open vulnerable relationships with other humans is good for health and other and and the you know on a national level people recognize it
0: so you sort of talked a little bit about the like there was trouble buying a house or you know, whatever. Can you tell me a little bit about the struggles that you guys have had or the challenges, I guess, of creating this home?
1: Yeah, you know, there are, this is maybe more from my Kentucky upbringing, but there there are so many ways to skin this cat, <laughs> There There are so many ways to do sober living, and we looked at quite a few different models and in talking with some of the, the treatment centers in Montana, you know, like initially we were like, we just want a sober house, like a, a place. Well, not not true. Initially we were thinking gigantic and, you know, like this 60 room YMCA building until we looked at it financially and realized like, yeah, it's a, building, but it's going to take $2 million to renovate it, which we weren't ready for. You know, it was like, okay, well we'll just get a house up and going. And so we went to the other extreme of like, it'll be a house, it'll be managed, but it's not going to be licensed. It's, it's, you know, it'll be like a minimal kind of this entry point, minimal level of supervision and, and, you know, mandatory programs like yeah you'll have to attend recovery activities but we weren't gonna structure those for ourselves and and determine what that programming looked like and we spent a lot of time kicking around like how do we structure this to to be transitional uh where you're not your your life's not planned out 24 7 like we want the guys in there to have jobs like get a job in the first month of being there that's one one of the mandatory requirements and and we have folks that can help with job placement and transportation and you know like when you when you make something mandatory you've got to have systems to support it and so you know the challenge becomes like how do you how do you find ways to make where you're not setting people up for failure and so you know we decided to go with kind of the the highest level of certification for a recovery home mainly because there's only like 7 in the state of Montana it's a huge need and i didn't realize that until i started working on the state licensing process you know i had heard from other providers and as i started to to tap into some of the the professional communities like oh you guys like you guys are doing the right thing like this is what you should be doing but until I started looking at the numbers and the data and the like, you know, there's 1,100 people that come out of higher levels of care every year, but like a hundred of them make it into a 3.1 home. Like there's there's not enough resources for serving all of the people, serving all the people that come out of residential treatment with the next level of care down. A lot of them just go straight into outpatient which, you know, can be effective. It's it's hugely reliant on personal motivation at that point, and you know, having time to to build that isn't really an option unless you do some kind of transitional living. So, you know, deciding on the level of care was a big challenge, and uh, and then we found like the right house. It was a seven bedroom, four bathroom. House in one of the nicest neighborhoods in Butte. And the seller was actually very excited to sell it to us. Before her husband, she had to sell the house because her husband had passed away. Before her husband had passed away, they had had a conversation about, wouldn't this be a great home for a group home? And she wrote us a beautiful letter. At the point when we put an offer in on the house, we didn't have a Facebook page, we didn't have a website, we had no public facing information whatsoever. And so, misinformation started to spread about who we were and what we were going to offer. And all of a sudden, we were a for-profit entity that was extorting money from a vulnerable population and we were going to have convicts, murderers, sex offenders, and we're within two blocks of a school and there's not going to be any management. And it was like the worst stories imaginable. And People showed up to a neighborhood meeting. Sean went to this neighborhood meeting to like answer questions. And it was a group of people with pitchforks and torches. And he just got grilled for like an hour and a half. And it was hugely traumatic for him. And and he was just like, we can't do this. Like we have to pull out. And I was like, Sean, there is nothing that they can legally do to stop us from moving into this home. We had more treatment professionals on the board at that time that were nervous about the implications of creating a, a bigger issue with, with neighborhood backlash. And so we pulled out and it created an, a whole whole blue with a proposed zoning ordinance change in Butte um, that was gonna affect all group homes and require them to go through a conditional use permit process. Well. It's already, this has been done in other communities. Butte's got sober living homes that aren't managed. That's just a landlord that rents to people that are coming out of pre-release because a couple months of rent are automatically paid. They've got a PO they can call if something goes wrong, but there's no accountability in the house. There's no structure. There's no requirement to attend meet and, you know, There's nothing beyond that. And that's what people thought we were going to be. You know that was like the that was the the measuring stick that we were held up against. I assure you, the process that we're going through with the Addictive and Mental Disorders Division at DPHHS is way more stringent than any conditional use permit process.
0: So it sounds like the spirit home that you're working to open is sort of just a beginning, right? Um, What do you see the work becoming, or or how do you see the spirit center? expanding and moving forward once you're kind of established
1: at the at the end of the day like I want to see people have access to peer support that need it and there's there's some outpatient providers in Butte for sure and there are plenty of therapists in Butte for sure but there is no non-12-step affiliated place where people can go and hang out and talk to other people in recovery and get connected to resources and so oh, one of the one of the other things that has come to my attention is <laughs> since we started this project i mentioned that there are other sober living homes in Butte that don't have any management and that don't have any accountability and since we started this project we've been contacted by two different owners that have said hey do you want to take over our house and to at this point what what I've said is what if we could work together on a contractual basis like if we get a model that is working for providing peer support ensuring attendance at outpatient and you know, developing like an individual treatment plan for, for each of the guys that are in our care. Like if we can put a package together that could be a contracted service that could go in and give some accountability and support in homes that don't have a full-time person that lives there, um, I think that would be fantastic to just, even if it's as simple as making sure that anybody that's living in a sober living house also has a peer supporter like that's a great step forward because there's some accountability and you know some some level of recovery planning that 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 those individuals are, are doing to be supported as they transition through a group home so there's there's a lot of room to like think and, and create ideas around it and the the beauty of becoming a state endorsed provider is that we can be a vehicle for other people's ideas, even. And the, the beauty of, you know, it's a, it's a non-profit organization with a board of directors that's primarily in recovery. It's a, it's a peer-run organization. So the willingness to give wings to other people's ideas is there, too. And, and there's not a, a, a large level of bureaucracy that we have to step through in order to do that. Coordination of care in Butte, it doesn't it doesn't exist in Butte right now, but that's something that I hope can happen.
0: <laughs> so the house isn't open yet. Is that correct? Correct. So what do you guys think is your timeline?
1: So just today, I submitted all of the remaining pieces of our licensing application and. They, I have been told that it would probably be a maximum of 60 days before we get a provisional license. So, within 60 days, we will be able to accept, we will be able to house people. So, current timeline is we start accepting applications in October, start accepting referrals in October, building that wait list, interviewing people for placement, and then mid November to beginning of December. We'll have, have folks living in the house.
0: Great. So how can people find out more information or potentially applications?
1: At this point, I don't have a publicly available application form, but we will on the buttespirit.org website. Again, that is buttespirit.org. And then you can also find us on Facebook at Butte Spirit, the the page name is Butte Spirit Center. We're also in the process of getting on the Montana Connect referral system, which is exciting. I'm really happy that, that such a thing exists for coordinating care in the state.
0: Thanks for joining me today, Demetrius. This has been really interesting and I really hope that this works out well for Butte and the recovery community.
1: Thank you, Andy, thanks for having me.
0: Thanks for joining us for another Recovery Month 2020 Recovery Talks podcast. If you'd like to enter for prizes, please go to mtpeernetwork.org/rm2020. You will need the code P O D 1 A R T. That's P is in Peter, O D is in dog, 1 A R T is in Tom. Thanks for listening and have a great day. Recovery works and recovery is possible. Recovery works and recovery is possible. Recovery works, recovery is possible. Recovery is possible.
1: <laughs> recovery, and recovery is possible. Recovery works and recovery is possible. Recovery works and recovery is possible. Recovery works and recovery is possible. Recovery is possible.